Hello, in today's episode of VFM, the Pensions Podcast, we're talking to Vince Franklin, actor extraordinaire and founder of Quiet Room, about what value for money means to him. Hello and welcome to the 29th episode of VFM, the Pensions Podcast. And I couldn't, as usual, be happier to be joined by my co-host, Nico Aspinall. And Nico, you're in France at the moment, celebrating Arsenal's first and hopefully not last <laughs> trophy of the season. Uh, yes, I mean, you know, I guess I'm celebrating. I, the charity shield's a weird one. Um, I'm delighted, of course, to be doing yet another podcast. It's 29 plus four specials, is it now, Darren? That's right, yeah. Um, uh, but you must have enjoyed the, the charity shield, I think. I, I was, I was there, um, mm. which was amazing. And it was the first time I've ever seen Arsenal win a trophy at Wembley. I've been to so many finals, yeah, um, but they've always lost. So it was... I'm, I, isn't, that what the, isn't that what the charity shield means? It's given to a team out of charity by the other team. <laughs> well, that's why, they are actually that, that's why they changed the name to the Community Shield, Vince. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's the Community it's Shield. Community Shield, yeah. Uh, yeah or, or Green Shield, or... <laughs> Just call it the meaningless trophy yes. at the beginning of the season. It's the equivalent of the dad's race. Yes, it, it is. Yes, it, it is. Cool. It is. Well, um, thanks for um, absolutely <laughs> popping my balloon there. And I haven't even because I haven't even introduced you. Yeah, yet, yeah. So you're taking over already. I, I, I'm really sorry. We're, I'm a Bradford City fan, so I have no interest in football at all. Well, allow me to just say uh, both to both of you. I have been to Wembley and watched Arsenal lift several FA Cups. There we go. Well, just for the record. Right. Just for the lucky, record. Lucky, lucky. So uh, we're in the hazy days of August. I'm in terms bridge the sun is sort of shining it's a bit warmer than it has been i was in wales last week and it was very wet and uh, very wet and very windy um but enough of that um we we, uh, we we we're joined by the man who needs no introduction and has actually already sort of introduced himself uh the one and only vince franklin um famous for his acting exploits i will never forget the trainer scene in the office yeah. um, and also for being the founder of the communications consultancy quiet room hi vince uh, welcome to the Hello, podcast <laughs> it's very nice to be here thank you for inviting me so so nico tell us um tell us when you first saw vince speak. oh no uh yes yeah, so um you and i were at the dg publishing dc summit last year um quick shout out to dg publishing um we're not in the pod yet again uh, but uh, every time we're in London, we, we, we do kind of shelter at their office and uh, very, very glad to, to do that. So, yeah, we were at the DC Summit last year. Um, uh, you guys from Quiet Room were doing this excellent session. We'll maybe come on to what you were talking about, because I think that's, uh, well, it's, it's really interesting how you think about that, kind of uh, putting yourself in the in the member's shoes. But we'll come on to that. And, um, yeah, I turned to Darren and said something like, he is exactly, exactly like the guy from Thick of It. And um, <laughs> Darren was like, you, Wally, <laughs> he is the man from the thick of it. So. <laughs> it's a bit of a, a, yeah, I hope I wasn't exactly like that. Yeah. <laughs> it was, after all, one of the most un unpleasant, arrogant men it's ever been my absolute fortune to play. But that happens quite a bit. We did, many years ago, uh, sorry to go slightly sideways, no, we, did, we did some work for the Treasury. I did an audit of the Treasury language during Perth. I know. I was, I, I was head of the pensions team at the time, Vince. Indeed. So I was in there doing doing this, sitting in, if you ever go to the Treasury, and, and, and there's no reason why you should, if you're saying, <laughs> is that you go into HMRC on Parliament Street and it's full of middle-aged grey people <laughs> struggling with, 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 with all the kind of HMRC stuff. And then as you walk through, to the back, it becomes the treasury, and, and everyone gets younger, right. and their suits get better. <laughs> yep. uh, uh, and we, I was sitting at a little table there in a kind of cafe area with somebody just having a chat, and a couple of people who shall remain nameless because uh, I've forgotten their names, <laughs> uh, who were ministers or at the time walked through and just stopped and stared at me because <laughs> I was looking exactly like Stuart Pearson. We were in the in between seasons of the thick of it. Right. And uh, and they clearly thought we'd just parked the tanks of satire outside and and marched in in during further. But that was, but actually, of course, at the same time, then they come and have a selfie with you because what uh -huh. you do discover is that politicians have no all know somebody 
a bit like the character you mm. play, but it's not them. Yeah. It's not them. It's other people. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, it must be. Uh, I mean, it must be so interesting and so kind of delightful. I hope to be kind of recognised, isn't it? I mean, uh, you know, in such a positive way. I guess it's not like being recognised for being awful. It's it's uh, sort of. No, I'm very lucky. Mm. The stuff I've done about the office, uh, cucumber, Happy Valley, mm. all of these things have really, really uh, brilliant uh, followers. You know, people who really like it, really like mm. it. 2012, and whenever people do come up, it's usually, usually, not always, but it's usually uh, in a very friendly way and saying, "Can I just say, I really, you know, I really like this show or that show, and thank you, and that's that's, and it's really nice." And often they know the show better than me um the, the time it's a bit of a problem is that i can't really go to diy stores now because it seems that if you're if you work in a diy store you have to be a fan of the english office right so i'm queuing up with a you know a pack of gravel some concrete and a post and there's several people around, and the man behind the counter this young youth will look at me a couple of times and then say I think there's been a rape up there, <laughs> which, which is a line from the from the office, which is fine. But my my character didn't know what to say at, at, yes. at, at the time, and I don't, and I don't know what to say now. And nobody else in this queue knows <laughs> what you're talking about. So apart from that, on the whole, it is very nice, and I and I've been very fortunate to work with some brilliant people and do stuff that people like. So that's a nice way to make a living, mm, isn't it? Absolutely, it certainly is. Um, so really nothing start, okay. it's nothing that's happened to me, Darren. Um, no, no, I, no. I, got, I should say I work with nice people. There we go. Um, <laughs> you know, we uh, we start with the news uh, as ever. So yeah, Vince, uh, guest prerogative. Uh, if you can go first, what what have you brought oh. in for us? Yeah. Oh yeah, I I brought news today. This is it's just because I'm quite interested. Massive, obviously, move towards ESG investing, long term investing, uh, and one of the things that that it was encouraged us all to do or for our, our investment managers to do is look at tech because mm. that's been a, a big growth sector. So the news today from the US, from the uh, Treasury, well, from the White House, that the Treasury Department is going to have these kind of two levels of sanction, really, on investing in tech, absolutely aimed at the Chinese. There's no they're kind of pretty open about that, mm. which means that all investing in, that, in, it will ha in, in any sort of technical kind of uh, area, whether that's telecoms or long you know or batteries or or devices to put into uh, uh into missiles will be scrutinized and if it could have a military or security implication it will not be allowed and what that's making me wonder is given how absolutely intertwined tech is mm. you know the components are so uh, ubiquitous and and that telecoms is a huge you know Telecoms is clearly security and everybody carries a telecommunication device mm. or at least one of them in their pocket. What is going to be the impact of this sanction on, first of all, American investors, but long term about all of our you know, investing? If we're, we've struggled a bit, ESG investing in, in assets, in equities has been not great over the last couple of years. If there's another, another hurdle on investing in tech, uh, what does that mean long term? Mm. And I, I don't know. I'm absolutely coming to, to go. What do you think, mm. guys? Well, look, I, shall I leap in? So there's um, there's so many different areas to kind of think about this in, right? So so um, we talked a little bit before the show, and I'll try and remember what we said. But uh, the, <laughs> the the one that kind of sparks to mind, just as you were saying it. So so there's this big divide between the Europeans and the US in terms of ESG. Mm. Um, so the Europeans are kind of pretty gung-ho for it. We've got SFDR, um, which uh, the Europeans are kind of like Article 8, which is uh, needs to be aware, let's say, of sustainability. And Article 9 needs to be doing sustainable stuff. Um, seems to be taking, certainly for fund launches, the vast majority of kind of what's coming to market now has to be sustainable. In America, uh, they are actually writing legislation state by state. So Texas, uh, Oklahoma which bans ESG from essentially state investments. So uh, treasury investments, the various kind of state and city pension schemes um, and other kind of pots of money that, the, that, the, that they've built up. And some of them go uh, as far as saying, do you anywhere in your business uh, essentially uh, exclude fossil fuel investment, in which case you're not eligible to be invested here? And, wow. And the rationale being that you shouldn't do politics through companies, right? <laughs> so, right. so 
with technology and you know particularly technology that might link to the chinese we're going to do geopolitics through investment so that yeah. that, that kind of two streamness is yeah. is interesting right yeah. um, if you want to invest in solar you're going to be buying chinese technology forget about leaking it to the chinese they have the technology and um, i think there's an australian study that said that if they were to make solar cells they'd be twice as expensive than just buying them from the chinese accepting that there's essentially Uyghur slave labor being made to 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 create solar panels so you know the 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 what is investment and is it political i guess is is the first thing that kind of kind of sparks mind there um the the other bits are then just what's the mechanism right so uh, do you have to go to treasury and get everything approved can you imagine the backlog um, can you imagine making that? I mean, you know, are they going to launch an app so that so that I can, with a click of a button, go? If I invest in Nvidia, does that is that Chinese technology or not? You know, um, it, it isn't to an extent that actually what they want you to do, what what they, is not to invest, but actually, so it's actually a default way of doing that. Mm. It just makes investing uh, sort of impractical. Do you know mm. what I mean? That that uh, I can't tell you not to invest in a toy manufacturer because that would be absurd, but I can make it so difficult to invest in a toy manufacturer that you don't. Uh, and, and that's a much easier way of doing it than legislating against it. Because at the moment as well, I mean, I'm sure there'll be more details, but you know, anything that, that could have a security implication will just be, no investment will be allowed. Mm. But these are huge Chinese companies that, that have a multiple kind of product streams. Mm. And could at one point be making silicon chips that do go into the new Barbie toy, but also produce something that helps missiles be more accurate. Yeah. You know, that I think might be very difficult uh, but, e- e- even to invest in in, in, in fairly uh, anodyne it, kind of but, products. But, but how do trustees and schemes actually navigate through all this? And, um, you know, like Nico, from what you were describing, it is, mm. um, you know, you're, you're almost getting conflicting direction yeah. um, from the political masters. And it's hard enough to develop a, a, you know, good investment strategy and really deliver value for money for members as it is um, without this, um, you know, political interference. Um, And, you know, we saw with the Mansion House stuff that, you know, there's a drive to, you know, shape where pension funds are investing. Mm. Um, But, yeah, I I wouldn't I don't think I'd like to be a trustee at the moment, having to navigate my way through all of this stuff. But it's it's to me, it's the, the creeping illiberalism. Uh, the the fear of totalitarianism that that uh, you know so anything that might have a security implication so can we understand what I mean like just us three do we understand is this I'm looking at a light could that have a security implication you know I could argue as the CIA you know that that we put bugs in lights that's that's now in you know if this could be anything couldn't it I, I saw something the other day, um, which was um, a worry about having Chinese technology in cars, mm. um, and especially given, um, you know, a car is basically um, a computer on wheels now. And, um, you know, could they just flick a switch and bring the whole country to a standstill? Right. You know, uh, they don't need to do that. They don't need to do that. They've ever designed the M25. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We, 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 we're good enough at sort of uh, messing that one up ourselves, aren't we? <laughs> So yeah, it, it. I mean, you know, uh, there is there is a lot of fear. So, so, you know, the political process in America has become so polarized. Um, there is a lot of fear that you know one party or the other will kind of essentially seize control, and that both parties are essentially kind of quite willing to put in the the, the, the kind of levers of state which enable them to do that. Mm. Um, so, if you look at how they've been using social media to stamp out dissent. Uh, particularly during COVID, but kind of before that. So the discussion of this of the lab leak hypothesis, right? I'm not saying whether it leaked from uh, the Chinese, what is it called, the Wuhan Virology Research Unit. Um, I don't have to believe in the conspiracy. I have to believe that science should be able to investigate anything that is a plausible kind of hypothesis. But that was actively controlled on Twitter and Facebook. If you've tweeted those things, you were kind of thought of as a dissident and your accounts were closed. If you were putting stuff onto YouTube, which was talking about it, you, you were demonetized. All of those sorts of things at the behest of the FBI, right? And this is just a terrifying position for a country that has a First Amendment, which says, you know, it protects speech. Um, so we don't have that in this country. Um, we have conventions, but we don't have any kind of law which protects speech. Um, so, you know, this is, it's just, it, the world of technology itself could enable a very, very scary future. 
um, and then to sort of overtly try and limit people's freedoms in terms of how they invest. I mean, for good reason, right? I've got I've got no kind of qualm with the the rationale, but how you do it can create precedent here to do really really scary things in the future. I was watching The Matrix yesterday. Oh yeah, um, on um, Sky Movies, um, one of the best films ever. Um, but yeah, that's pretty scary stuff. <laughs> talk, talk me through the renewable it, technology there, Darren. I don't know. <laughs> What's that? Yeah. <laughs> there is something into that. I understand that, uh, and I completely, completely you know, come down on the side of you know people should be allowed to discuss, and that you need to bring a conspiracy into the open, not mm. force it underground, and all of that. The de- one of the dangers, of course, the, the, the sort of counter that to, to, to shoot myself in the foot in a way is that we we know all the research tells us that our brain cannot tell the difference between that which is true and that which we have heard a lot mm-hmm. you know? if something is repeated again and again eventually it feels like it becomes a truth for us but that's you know and that's based on i i imagine on how we've 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 evolved as a species mm-hmm. if what we encounter is repeated eventually that is the truth whether it's however it's created brexit would so be one good of the problems you... brexit would be good exactly <laughs> yeah. brexit would be good um i remember you know when we had the uh the the, the the coalition government and that we had you know there was going to be all this this was there was all these cutbacks and we we, we were deciding whether we were going to close the library or we were going to close the or the or the, or the hospital. You know that was the decision because we had to make these. But this was this would be borne by everybody. Um, you know the, the, those with the broadest backs would bear the biggest burden and all of this. And it was said so often that we did think the debate was whether we should close the library or should close the, the hospital. Mm. In which case it was a very difficult you know argument to have if you're a librarian. But actually that maybe wasn't the debate we should be having. But we'd heard it so often that that became the debate mm. rather than whether either of these needed to close or there was an alternative approach, mm. you know, because you just frame uh, the discussion we're allowed to have by repeating things. So if you go on to conspiracy websites and lots and lots of, of, uh, of kind of opinions about something, um, there must come a point at which you go, actually, they are right. It's a, only a question of the flavor of the conspiracy that's right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the dangers of social media. That doesn't mean I think we should be you know, banning anyone discussing uh, you know whether the, the the virus comes out of a laboratory or out of a bat, mm-hmm. but I, I, I but I do think it's a danger we have to acknowledge is that if you see something a lot, you think it's true. Yeah, yeah, but see, this is where I push the fault onto social media. Um, so, yeah. so uh, you know, I remember there was the I was talking, I was at Towers Watson, so it's probably a decade ago, probably slightly more, and I think there was a genuine sense that um, you know Facebook could fall over because it didn't have a model which enabled it to make any money at all right um and uh, likewise google very very good at like capturing people's searches um but not very good at monetizing it and there was this kind of moment maybe 10 15 years ago where um they monetize stuff and they monetize it based on based on our attention and they plug adverts around that and so that sort of the, the rabbit holes, I think they call it, or the echo chamber nature now, post that sort of monetization piece, means that we're all trapped in these little bubbles and nobody's really talking to each other once you stop believing in Brexit or, you know, the, the lab leak hypothesis or the flat earth, right? I mean, there's all these kind of little pockets. <laughs> pockets. Of, well, but the flat earth is, a, I think, a brilliant example of this problem, right? Which is... Um, you know, there's the song, uh, is it Dean Martin? They all uh, laughed at Christopher Columbus when he said the world was round. Nobody yeah. in that period of time thought the earth was flat. There's absolutely I did see a brilliant evidence. thing, by the way, that's from the Flat Earth Society. Somebody tweeted, said, tweeted or shared somewhere that said, uh, was from them that said, uh, believing in a flat earth is not is not ridiculous. It's believed by b- millions of people around the globe. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Indeed. Around the plate. I don't know what we should call it. (laughs) Um, I mean, the the, the mental contortions that those guys have to go through um, to to justify a flat earth. Anyway, here we go. Um, So, yeah, we we created these little pockets of the Internet. I think it's getting worse. TikTok was being obviously a massive threat to a lot of different social media. And TikTok is like the uber extreme of this, where everything that you've looked at then dictates what you then next see. And we just have to we just have to realize that that is a really bad way of organizing information in society. <laughs> mm. 
Um, and yes, it does lead you to places where the only thing you're seeing is evidence of flat Earth. Um, and I'm sure you do go and believe it. Um, but but that's not we shouldn't be just putting flat Earth information. It shouldn't be possible to look at TikTok and just be trapped in the flat Earth world, you know. Um, so, yeah, I blame social media, but uh, there we go. Give me the powers and I'll sort it out. <laughs> right. I'm moving us on, Nico. Okay. <laughs> what have you got, Darren? So um, there's an article published today in The Times, or on the, today on the day of recording, um, which the headline is State Pensions to Cost More Than Education, Policing and Defence Combined. And and this is obviously due to ageing population and, and also the triple lock, um, which I read, um, our listeners will know uh, means that the state pension rises by earnings inflation or 2.5%, whichever is, is higher. Um, so, you know, for me, you know, the, the state pension is the bedrock of our pension system. Mm. Um, and, and obviously, Steve Webb, when he was pensions minister, you know, introduced a number of reforms to, um, you know, to, to, to simplify the state pension, to turn it into the single tier, um, providing that sort of strong foundation to save. But the, but the question is, is it going to be sustainable longer term? Mm. And there was some IFS research that is quoted in the article, which is, you know, a third of people do not believe the state pension will exist in 30 years time. Um, and I love this bit. With those who voted leave in the EU referendum and 2019 Tory voters feeling the most pessimistic, um, according to um, the IFS and the Aberdeen Financial Fairness Trust. So, yeah, it's um, it's going to be sort of quite a political debate going forward. Um, and we know that... Um, you know, retired people, older people vote, and they're um, very electorally powerful. So are we just stuck um, with an unsustainable state pension system that we're going to have to find different ways of funding for time immemorial? Mm. There is, of course, my, my terrible cynicism, because, of course, I'm sure the, the costs are really uh, ballooning. 135 billion was a figure I think I, I saw in the, in the news. Mm. But actually, while while you're cutting education spend, policing spend, and defence spend, uh, there is a sort of there's an, an ultimate truth that you you will spend more on state pensions yeah. if you keep slashing the m- money you're spending in other areas. And of course, that when you do slash what you spend in other areas, you create a, an even bigger problem. Yeah. And if you're not spending enough on education, then you'll have a, a less healthy and and uh, successful a population contributing taxes growing building their own pot for retirement etc yeah. if you don't have enough in social care then that will put a massive burden on uh, on, on people in, in older age who cannot who aren't be looked after to sort of stay in their, their homes or if people aren't saving enough into their into their into their pensions then they'll be relying on social care and if and if you don't put enough in social care then actually you've got as we've got now the nhs that is has an absolute crisis on its hands because it can't get people who could go home with some lower level of care into some kind of social care the support in their homes that they have to do it mm-hmm. so it seems a lot self-fulfilling really mm-hmm. that if you don't invest enough in the other things you will have to spend more and more on pensions mm-hmm. because people will live older and ill and at home yeah and those figures we should just say um don't include things like social care spending mm-hmm. uh, which is obviously going up yeah. massively and spending on nhs and um you know wider services and we know that um you know, quite understandably, older people are big consumers of um, NHS services. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so the triple lock, um, I, I don't know if politically this is a sort of warm-up for us diluting the triple lock. Um, well, Tory peer Ban- Baroness Altman, uh, former pensions minister, said, I don't think the triple lock is a sensible policy. Yeah. But that's part of the article as well. But I don't think it's a forever policy either. I don't think it was intended to be. You, you know, essentially, I, I can't remember, was it Brown as Chancellor? Um, no, no. So it was um, it was part of the coalition agreement. So oh, was it? Was it? Part, it was part of the Lib Dem manifesto. So it was one of the terms that they um, came in. On. Uh-huh. And, um, yeah, it's probably one of the most expensive, um, you know, government uh, spending commitments ever. Um, and the amount of time that, because I've, headed up the pensions team at the treasury at the time it was just like we have to do it it's part of the coalition agreement right you know um so yeah well god um, bless it, uh, the coalition agreement i mean there's there yeah. was no that we we, we 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 can't forget where we were in terms of pension and poverty um and mm. uh historically pensioners and uh not have i mean the other plank of this is then um what was called stp or serps right and, it, and the integration into the basic state pension 
there were definite pockets of people who had worked a long time who were who were in poverty and retirement uh, and who hadn't had earnings, which would mean that necessarily kind of private sector pensions would be even now eligible, right? So, yeah. so the, the triple lock has has really alleviated huge amounts of pension and poverty. Yep. I, I didn't think at the time that this was going to, this was about catch up. It wasn't about, you know, in 2050, we're still going to have the triple lock. Um, so I guess what we ideally would have is some sort of discussion as to when to retire the triple lock as opposed to some knee jerk, um, it's very expensive, isn't it? And it's like, well, okay, but we're an aging society whatever you do, you know, state pensions will, will escalate in cost. Um, so, so yeah, I'd hope that at some stage, I mean, maybe it's a forlorn wish that, you know, we'll have sensible politicians having sensible policy. It doesn't, doesn't see huge amounts of evidence of that. Um, but that we can just have a conversation as to what, what is an acceptable kind of level of basic state pension, given that we've got these other planks of auto-enrolment around it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. And I think, um, you know, S2P or SERPs as it originally mm, was, mm. Um, you know, was it was a good policy. Um, the trouble is, um, you know, it got so much cuts to it mm-hmm. um, in terms of accrual rates and stuff because of the cost and short term spending pressure um, that, yeah, it ended up not doing its job. And and, uh, and and just finally on this article, then we'll do your news piece, Nico, mm-hmm. but um, a government source said there was little that could be done to ease the cost in the short term and that future decisions would be a, a quote, problem for the next government. <laughs> <laughs> Love, it. Love probably, it. Probably the government after that. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the, the, the other piece here is just the costs versus the uh, the revenues. So this is this is a contributory system national insurance not properly hypothecated against either pensions or or health um but you know for a long time national insurance has lagged behind the costs of the nhs and and, and state yeah. pensions um yeah. i think it's it's probably about 60 percent of the combined cost um and uh you know getting lower right so um at some stage reform of tax even not to raise tax i mean that probably is part of the solution but just to to better hypothecate some of our taxes against the actual contributory systems that we're meant to be a part of would be there we go part of, part of the plea right? treasury doesn't like hypothecation of taxes no um, but anyway um, anyway we're, we're running out of time all right i'll we're be very running quick. out of time yet but go on no, we're running out of slots, aren't we? Yeah, so, yes. so let me wrap up the news. Um, so Philip Smith, uh, the Pensions Trust, um, he has put in a, a kind of thought piece into uh, professional pensions, I think it was. That's right, yep. Um, there it is. Um, talking about uh, uh, how to how the DC sector can better serve those with cognitive decline. Um, so lots of good stuff in there. I, I think this is one of the critical issues in... Uh, freedom and choice, the unthought of problem of people getting into uh, their 80s. So one in six people over 80 uh, have uh, dementia. There's 900,000 people. Um, So that's going to balloon to 1.6 million by uh, 2040, uh, the prediction of the Alzheimer's Society. So, you know, if you are someone who's gone into drawdown and, um, you know, you become less and less able to manage that, uh then what on earth happens if you are someone who has someone to look after you um and fingers crossed everyone does then the pressure on those people to do sensible things with the finances of the person you're caring for uh must be immense uh at the moment you know i i've seen inside a few kind of different drawdown uh solutions you know they are designed for an advisor to charge you to take you through that's not because I don't think there's a sort of willful complexity there. I think it is complex. Um, so really, Philip here is is kind of arguing for simpler solutions that people can engage with without advice. Um, and uh, he has three, uh, four principles. So the product designed to provide a sustainable income stream in retirement. We've heard that theme a few times, Darren, in the podcast. Yep. We have. Um, so, so income for life is what I heard there. Um, So flexibility to vary uh, income and uh, to take withdrawals, uh, protection against the cognitive decline, and so avoiding the need for complex later life decisions, um, and then uh, independent governance of the DC products. So um, look, so he's obviously on the provider side. um, And so the suspicion has to be that they're doing the work to tick those four boxes. um, And uh, who knows how soon we might see this it could be beginning of a kind of campaign of a launch um which i'd be very interested in in seeing um 
the final thought here is that, uh, and as mentioned, could CDC play a role? Um, so I think TPT would be quite well positioned to be a CDC provider. Mm. Um, so that would be quite an interesting space for the CDC debate to go into. Um, so yeah, interesting little article. Um, I think it was uh, this week's this week's publication. Yeah, and there was um, there was an article a couple of weeks ago about um, TPT having done a number of roundtables with employers on mm-hmm. CDC. Um, so again, that backs up what they're what they're saying in that. So so I just want to pick up on the on the, the vulnerability point mm-hmm. um, and um, the communications aspect of that. Um, so so Vince, you know you're you know, through your work, through Quiet Room, you know, you do a lot of, um, obviously, communication stuff um, and you're, you know, having to communicate with different sort of groups of people. You know, what do we get so wrong? Well, I think, actually, Simon Grover, a, a colleague of mine, friend, colleague at Quiet Room, I hate the word colleague, it's a friend of mine at Quiet Room, I do also work with him. He wrote a thing recently about this and about, uh, which, which is out there for everyone to see, come along to Quiet Room website, you can have a look at it. Uh, uh, but also available, available at various newsstands, which is, I think, um, we need much, much better defaults mm. within our within the industry mm. and much less reliance on decision making. I think it's fundamentally unfair to auto-enroll somebody into something, but then a, that thing requiring advice for them to get out. Mm. If you're advised, you know, in its in, it, in its original form, DC pensions were wealth management tools yeah. used by the wealthy with advice, in addition usually to their both their state and whatever pension provision they had from their employer if they had one. They were they were not meant to be for your average Joe in the street to put something together and to be auto enrolled into. So I think it comes down to that that in and out. There needs to be better defaults and less less reliance on advice. Although I know some people need advice and it's very very valuable, but actually you have to if you're going to auto enroll people in, they have to be auto enrollable, unenrollable through a really really good default, mm. w- which protects them against their needs as they as they get older, mm. without them having to foresee it. Because the other thing about 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 disease and old age and 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 uh, you know how long are we going to live? No one can answer. Yeah. How well will I be in old age? No one can answer. So the system has to be able to do it for them. So that communication, although I hate to you know to shoot myself in the foot here, needs to play less of a role. It isn't about helping people make really good decisions always, because sometimes you simply cannot make the right decision. Mm. And around your ill health and life expectancy is one of the things that makes that difficult. So while it's good to give people choices, which allows them some flexibility in how they spend, how they live their life, asking them to make decisions about such fundamental things as how long they live and how how able to make decisions about their life they'll be in their late 70s mm. is simply un, unreasonable because they can't. And on top of which, I think one of the things we're finding with DC POTS now is more and more people are retiring or changing their, you know, stopping work, using their... Uh, their their cash, their 25% cash, not knowing what to do with the rest Mm -hmm. and leaving it to the future, which can only increase the likelihood that by the time they do come to use the rest of that, their pot, their ability to make right the good decisions becomes less. You know, if dementia, you know, any form of cognitive impairment is more likely when you're 10 years older than you are Mm -hmm. now. Um. It's. I mean, I was. I was really struck. There was a. There was a story in the FT today. This wasn't my news item. But I'm not trying to do too. Uh, a sort of like a meta review of behavioural finance. Um, so the uh, the title yeah. they've dropped it down, but essentially saying uh, that uh, behavioural finance isn't all it's cracked up to be, um, but that there are really important pieces of choice architecture. It's a little bit about the buzziness that there was uh, again in that sort of coalition time. Uh, we had the nudge unit in this country that was kind of replicated yeah. around the mm-hmm. world. Um, but so Darren and I, I think you and I've pinned our colours to the mast several times on this podcast about essentially Just behavioural finalists, <laughs> financialists, I don't know what it is. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm super keen on choice architecture mm. and well-crafted defaults. That has to be yeah. the core here. Right? I'd argue that. Yes, absolutely. Um, should so, we, uh, yeah, should we move yeah. on? I think we should. So, so Vince, can you tell us how you got into pensions? Uh, yeah, I, I, it's quite rooms twenty years old. Mm, uh, last congratulations. Oh, congratulations! And thank you very much. Uh, and 
Mark and I uh, set up Quiet Room uh, 20 years ago. See, even for somebody with my limited uh, sort of cognitive ability, I can, it's a 20-year anniversary. I know it was 20 years ago. Um, and we did it because we'd worked together in another organization, in a marketing and advertising uh, company called Asylum. I know. It was the 80s, I think, when they set it up, probably. Um, and we, they used to design the annual report and accounts for Deutsche Asset Management. And so Deutsche were thinking at the time of going into pensions as a, not just as an asset manager, but as a provider and gave them the opportunity to pitch for the work. And Mark and I were the pitch team and we knew nothing about pensions. So we said, look, we know it's complicated and people don't understand it. Well, we put together a kind of focus group and we sat and watched people talk about it, mm. that people knew much less than we than we thought and that the, and we looked at the way pensions were being communicated it was truly we felt appalling the way people talk about it there is a limit to how many pictures of a of a beach hut there should be on any <laughs> uh, and that it was so ridiculously complicated and written about people who weren't real there was all these shiny glamorous mm. people who had no you know kind of just nonsense so and but for me because my was language. I was a copywriter in that organization and words meant huge amounts to me. And I just realized that lots of organizations had these words they had to send out to an audience that sort of had to listen because they were they were buying this product. They were enrolled in this thing and that the words were just not working. Mm. That People were t using terrible, you know, uh, full of abstractions and full of, you know, passive voice and sentences with 140 words in oh, them and yeah. Yeah, a, a cruel rates. And if you ask somebody in the street what a cruel meant, it, it, she's a character from 101 Dark <laughs> and, and so we we thought we would put together just a small, we said we'd be really focused and we would look at financial language and how you can help people make better decisions about their future, whether that's in the world, in the words of, of insurance or, or but pensions was our focus because we we felt it was just an untapped resource mm. and uh, you know these words go out and they should be working a lot harder so we started with a pretty uh, low ambition in a way which was just to get people to say less and say it better and make sure that what they were sending out and this has certainly always been what quiet room has been about is that the first question is why send out anything at all mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. fact that we're legally obliged to is not good enough you know, the question is, what is it that people are doing or not doing that is to their detriment? Mm. OK, well, if that's the thing that you want them to do that they're not doing, why are they not doing it? What are you telling them that is perhaps not helping? What what else are they hearing? So how could we help them do that thing by changing the way we talk about it, mm -hmm. by shortening the journey to doing it, by telling them less about it because they lost the will to live halfway through that letter. Yeah. How can we get people to do things that are in their interest? So this relies on the fact, and I've been one of the glorious things about these 20 years is that we have worked with people who virtually to a man, because of course there's going to be an exception somewhere, to a man or woman we've spoken to, they want to do the best for people who are saving for their old mm. age. And that's a really brilliant place to start. But then you have to say, OK, well, if you want to do your best for them, what do they need to be doing? How can we help them do it? And our communication often begins with let's not send it out. Let's not tell them that it's not helpful. You know, cut out the stuff that is true, but not useful. Mm -hmm. Put in the stuff that helps people get to where they need to go. And as we've grown and become more mature and as I've become less and less um, uh, sort of uh, at the heart of quiet room was other people like you know russ and and uh, and chopper and simon and robin and all these julia and all these brilliant people have, have have kind of taken the reins we become more and more about it being about driven being driven by that which we can prove mm, yeah. do you know mm. uh so uh and it's and, and we but what we've always been about is not is not being about nicer, bigger, glossier brochures. I will get a heart sink moment when I meet trustees and they say, we just want to kind of revamp what we do or get a bit more engagement. Well, if you want to revamp what you do, use a heavier paper stock. <laughs> <and a nicer laughs> uh, that'll revamp it, but it won't achieve anything yeah, for those yeah. people that you're sending this stuff out to. So what is it, how, how can you help? Uh, and communication is only a tool. I used to, when we used to interview people to come and work for us, uh, I used to always be a bit, uh, a bit ner well, more than a bit nervous. I always used to think the interview was kind of over uh, when people would say, you see, the thing is, I just love words. You know? <laughs> oh, oh, do you? Because I really love what they can do, but I don't love them for their own yeah. sake very much. Yeah. I have an English degree, you know, 
that's like a few of them. So that's the change that's happened in Quiet Room. Mm. We began by trying to change the words and we are now absolutely kind of insight led. What are people doing? Why are they doing it? What can we learn from that to change things to give them a better experience and a better outcome? Yeah. And, and, and what's um, just just looking back on those twenty years? Um, what do you, what is you know? Give us a, a really proud achievement of something that Quiet Room or, or you've been involved in, which has really made a difference. Um, well, I I'm a I'm always really pleased when you can see a very specific change of behavior mm-hmm. if that makes sense so, you know if, um we produce stuff that looks nice i'm very i mean i'm very proud because i was really at the heart of working on the simpler annual statement mm-hmm. which i know some people hate and some you know i'm and i'm absolutely I love it. happy to field all of those questions but we were put in in a kind of the heart of the death star as it were <laughs> being told could you get 20 pages down to well initially one or two sides of a4 because it's 20 25 pages for these things mm. and uh, and initially we were told, because it was a government kind of led kind of, you know, initiative, really, we were a task force. A task force is what they ask you to join when they're not going to give you any money because it, it sounds sexy. <laughs> uh, uh, so we do, you're doing it for nothing, but that's okay because it's going to change things. Um, and initially they said, and there'll be legislation changes, of course, to make it work. And then we were told like a month in, there'll be no legislation changes. So what you do has to work within this legislation. And I loved being in those, the research, watching through the glass, mm. as it were, while people say, this is what I had because they would bring in what they got or, you know, from their their pension scheme. And then they'd be shown the simpler annual statement. And they were, they get, what was really great was they begin to ask difficult questions of their pension in a good way. They understand it. And as soon as they understand it, they go, why am I paying that in charges? What does that pay for? Mm-hmm. I never noticed there was that before. So that's one of those kind of, you know, and I think if we want people, we know that for pe- people to really save for their old age, what they have to own that pension. At the moment, too many people see it as a tax. And if you own something, you're allowed to ask questions about it. So I want them to be able to join in the conversation. But I also want our communication to mean they only join in the conversation if they're challenging what we're doing because it ain't good enough, or they would like to change what they're doing to get a different outcome. I don't want them having to ring up because they simply don't understand what we've told mm-hmm. them. So I, I'm fascinated about because you've got these sort of two amazing careers. <laughs> so, so, so I mean, I guess like just number one, how does it how does, how does it work in practice? So, it's, so were you when you founded it, were you kind of a jobbing actor, and then you had a few kind of breaks? Or, yeah, yeah. Um, it's I don't I don't know that I think the first thing I'm not sure it has worked. Sometimes <laughs> my wife would say, "You're just too stressed. You you can't do both of these things. Uh, stop." But it was it was when we first started. I was I was a jobbing actor trying to do more telly mm-hmm. uh, because it would pay more money, and I was getting bits and pieces and not enough. And then I've been very fortunate. By the time I did get the more interesting jobs, the more interesting films, the work with Mike Lee, etc., mm-hmm. we'd we'd kind of uh, quite remember grown enough for for other people. And also in acting, if, if you're getting a rubbishy job, you audition on Thursday to start on Monday. Right. If you're meeting people for more interesting jobs. They're often two, three, four months away. Yeah, yeah. You know, so you can kind of factor in to the planning of your uh, of what you're going to do that you're going to have you're you're going to be away. Mm-hmm. And also, uh, I because I really love working in this industry, and I and I really love the people uh, that I work with and for, as it were. Even when I'm not working, I'm very happy if I've got a couple of hours free in an evening for somebody to say, "Have a quick look at this. What do you yeah, think?" Yeah. I don't like to. I don't like to go too far from it, and I think it keeps you really fresh. And my pretentious answer, answer, which I'm going to give you, is regarded as the best plays in the English language are the work words are William Shakespeare's plays, mm. which have no stage directions. They are really beyond the old exit or he dies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they are basically the words that characters say. And you have to find out what your character says, how it talks, what it talks about, the language it uses to talk, to work out who they are and what they're about. Well, actually, that's a really brilliant way of thinking about the way we communicate. Mm. How do we how do we talk? What language do we use? What does that say about us? So actually, these things are not as far apart as you might think. And sometimes, you know, if you're using big, long, complicated words in long sentences, what does that say about your character yeah. and what does it you know and the, and the people that you're talking to if you're using short sentences and talking about them not you that says a very different thing about the kind of person you are mm-hmm. so i think in a way particularly early on 
I did bring some of that pretentious approach to playing characters in Shakespeare to how you think about this, because I, I think it's it's really important to know that when someone opens up what we say to them, when they feel nervous about the content we're talking about, they don't feel confident about finance, a huge part of their experience is going to be whether they trust it and believe it on how we talk about it, mm -hmm. who they think we are. You know, so I think that's so I do think that really matters. Mm. So, so, so random left field question. You know, you've done lots of you've done lots of TV now. Yeah. And we mentioned some of them uh, before. But you, you play sort of comedy roles. Yeah. And you play more serious roles. What do you prefer? Yeah. Oh, uh, I really love doing comedy. I was a stand up for a year and a bit when I was leaving university in a double act. Right. We weren't very good, <laughs> but we had a good time. Uh, we called ourselves John and Vince because he was called John and I was called Vince. And it meant we could always work out the venues we were at because they had our names out because <laughs> uh, we, we were often quite drunk. Uh, but it was the 80s. It was real proper alternative stuff. We had a chainsaw in our act wow. and a lot of sweat and a lot of sweary words. Um, and we ran a, a, an alternative comedy club in Bristol called Ken Dodd's Love Children. It was the 80s, guys. That's what you did. Um, so I do. like. I mean, I to be honest, I think what I really like about the serious roles is when you can find the comedy in them mm. you know so mm. something like cucumber or happy valley i really love the dark humor that you find in those i think great writers always put in uh that what i really don't i don't like watching any television or any film where there isn't a moment in which i laugh yeah. does that make sense even if it's a serious topic because mm. i just think life isn't really one note like that mm. life is mm. full of absurdities and you know i love those i look I love those kind of thrillers where the dead man is on the floor and there's a terrible game show and somebody dressed as a bunny on the television. <laughs> you know what I mean? That sort of that I, I love all, all that. So where well, I don't like it when everything seems to be ch channeling uh, grim in the same direction. Mm. But comedy is great because also you bounce off each other in comedy in a really interesting way. And something like the thicker bit was just brilliant people. Amando uh, Anucci is a, an amazing man to work for. But I also you know John John Morton and I've worked Victoria Wood and these just mm. absolute amazing legends and, and and is the comedy all scripted or have you got a bit of a license to go off piste it varies uh it varies uh, john morton's work i did 2012 with john mm. and people like us and he writes the most amazing dialogue to the comma right so he will write yes comma no comma i mean comma <laughs> yes no comma full stop you know and you deliver it absolutely like that whereas the thick of it they write brilliant scripts and you uh you learn you, you read, what we would do is we'd read those scripts on a, on a Monday morning, read the script. It'd be far too long. So they'd send us home while they rewrite it. We'd come in the next day. We'd read the Tory scenes and then just read them once. And then Amanda would say, OK, look, why don't we do the scene between the scene in the car and the scene in your office, the scene in the corridor? Just make it up. And the writers <laughs> would be there and they'd, as you're making up, they're scribbling stuff down that they then put into the scenes that they've written. Right. So then a, a week or so later, when you're actually you're going to film that scene, You'd film the scene. He would work really quickly with two cameras, no continuity, because, as he said, nobody watches the thick of it for the continuity, uh -huh. you know. And once you've done a couple of takes, he'd, he'd say, right, now throw the script out and do another one without the script. Yeah. And then we'll edit it together. And when new people joined, I remember him saying it to me, but I particularly remember him saying it to other people, because, of course, your heart isn't racing quite as fast when it's other people joining the company. He would always say, the secret here is just to listen and respond. Yeah. No. Don't worry about the script. Just listen and respond. So in the thick of it, there was a lot of improvisation, but I'm always a bit nervous, a bit like Joey and Friends when he says that they make a lot of it up. It began with really, really good scripts. Mm. And we were then were given the license to play with. Nice, nice. So. Um, value for money, Nico. Yeah. What, uh, Vince, what does value for money mean to you? God, yeah, when you asked me, the one thing I, I thought they're not going to ask me what I surely, because I'm from, I'm from Yorkshire. Right. Um, I think what it isn't is cheap. And I yeah. think that's the mistake. Mm. It's not cheap, but it's everything I need and nothing that I don't need. And I don't want to be paying for packaging. Mm. And I want to know at the end what it's going to cost me. And it will. I went out to a restaurant last night. It was my wedding anniversary. Mm. Congratulations. Congratulations. Yeah. And uh, th thank you very much. And so we went to a, 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 a posh restaurant. And uh, and the bill was, I don't know, it was about 50% or 30% more than I thought it would be, right? right? And, that, and that wasn't because it was anything, it was because, oh, so everything. If, if I order a meal in a restaurant and it's like 50 quid for a couple of courses, yeah. it's a set menu, yeah. 
I don't want them to find another 15 quid on top of that for vegetables. Yeah. Right. Mm. Or as my mother would have said, vegetables. <laughs> um, because that just seems to me that and so I, that's what I, I want. I, I, I kind of want to see what it is and make a choice and not then find other things have been strapped mm. on. And does that make sense? Yeah. Uh, and I don't want somebody to be more interested in their product than me. Mm. I don't want a waiter that comes around telling me, you know, where these olives were grown and the name of the person that packed them and who is that comes in and deals with the rats. And there was a bit of that about it. <laughs> they didn't mention rats, I'm sure they were to me, but they sort of, know, you know, the people in the kitchen who have been looking after you today are, why do I care? <laughs> I don't care. I don't, you know, bring me my tea. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I sort of want, so I don't want packages that mean I have to have what I don't mm. want. So I, I don't have Sky because I don't want to be paying for children's television. My children have left. Yeah. Uh, you know, I want to, but I want... I want I want to be able to see what it what it is, and I don't mind it being expensive, but I need to sort of know why. Does that make yeah. sense? And at all times, I want to feel in control. That's the other thing. You know, I would say if I am going on on, on experience, whether that's my pension or my or my meal out, I don't want to get to the end. And it to and don't get me wrong, the bill was right, and it and the food was delicious, mm. and we had a very nice time. Was it good value for money? No, because actually, what I thought I was going to spend. It turned out to be more mm. and things that I think, and I used to work in restaurants, I was brought up in restaurants, you know, uh, when it's £7.90 for six new potatoes, right. I think that's quite a mark. Yeah. I know what that markup is, you know. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. And, and, and how do you, how do you sort of translate that into the, our world, the pensions world? It, well, I think, well, I think that's, I think it translates really easily, really. At the heart of it, people need to be more interested in me than their product. Mm. Right. And, and that's certainly true of pensions. You need to know what it is that people need. I mean, my radical change, which I know, you know, is that we were talking earlier about the problem with national uh, insurance paying for pensions mm. is that we shouldn't have a had auto enrollment. We should have doubled national insurance contributions, which is roughly what it does. Yeah. The, the, those rates uh, substantially increase the state pension as a result boosted the Treasury's money so that it could invest in long-term products, the very thing that the Mansion House speech said we should be investing mm -hmm. in long-term uh, project, you know, liquid assets, um, you know, whether that's our healthcare or our, or our railways or whatever, mm. to give everybody, not the £200 a week, but say £320 a week, which would be a pretty good weekly wage for most people. Do you know what I mean? That would mm. be a, a reasonable. Or, or, um, and then if you want more than that, then you do go down the advised route of saving something else because you've got a much bigger income, clearly. Do you know what I mean? Um, so what I'm saying by that is that I think that the products that we have need to be as absolutely simple as they can be. And people need some sort of uh, to, to know that they've got choice within what they have, yeah. but not choice that they don't that they don't want, not yeah. decisions they don't yeah. want to make. Yeah. And they should never be asked to make decisions that they are absolutely unqualified to make, yeah. by which I mean decisions around, uh, you know, how long, uh, you know, here's, a, here's, a, here's a, a little game you can play on our website where you can put in the age you're going to die to work out. How, well, I don't know what age I'm yeah. going to yeah, yeah. drop dead tomorrow. Uh, yeah. so, so I think simpler would be, have we, I, I know I'm rambling now. No, so have we become too kind of like individualized and maybe selfish as a society? Because so, so what you described sounds very sensible, but I just thinking about the culture that we seem to, we seem to have, and maybe social media is, I, I'd say the tip of the iceberg, right? It's, it, there's, there's something kind of different going on socially there. But you know, are we too focused yeah. on what, what's in it for me? Um, and financial services product? I think we're encouraged to be, aren't we? Mm. That if people are trying to sell us things, it's easier to do that if that product makes me, uh, if, if what you do is make me feel that it's it will boost me as it, you know, people. My granddad retired mm. and lived on his double allotment for, on a state pension. Yeah. Right. Because he loved working on that allotment mm. and he grew fruit and veg and that's what he did. We have been convinced over the last 40 years that buying things is a recreational activity. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, and getting but, into debt actually what <laughs> makes me happy yeah yeah but yeah, well i'll be made happier if i have another of those yeah. or a bigger one yeah. of those yeah. or a newer one of those and 
and I don't get me wrong, I'm not sort of saying the 1950s were a great time. But what I'm saying is, you know, if we, the, up until the, the beginning of the last century, we were controlled by the, by a church and a belief in God, and that's mm. what justified our, our lives, perhaps. And then we, we we it was kind of you know then we had the belief in a society, and that included my granddad's a lot. But Christ, I'm, I really am on a soapbox now, and I can't just well and, and two but, world wars. I'm saying it's two world wars. Right? So we pulled two together. world wars, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean. Yeah. And and now it's it's well, what you need is the latest iPhone. I, mm. A day doesn't go past without my provider telling me I could upgrade my phone. Well, yeah, my yeah. current phone's working really well. Yeah. yeah. And, and they and the adverts will tell me that I'll be the envy of my friends yeah. if I have the latest. And I want to go. You don't know my friends because if I got the latest, they just think I was a bit of an idiot, yeah. a bit of a knob. <laughs> they wouldn't think they wouldn't be envious at all. So 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 just coming back to your um your the role of the state in all of this. Mm. Yeah, because, you know, I, I don't disagree. Yeah. Um, but could you trust politicians? You know, can you trust the state and the state architecture, you know, if you were going to provide that sort of minimum level of income? Um, and, you know, could it be baked in for, for longer term? Because, you know, we, we, we've, we've seen, you, t- you know, you see the U-turns on stuff almost on a daily basis. Um, well, we've had a state pension since the 20s, haven't we? There's 20s about that, isn't it? Uh And uh, of course, uh, and of course, the big lie, which which people have, because people have never been asked to really understand it, is this is the pension I've been paying for. Mm. Well, no, what the pension you were paying for was the people who retired when you started work. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, that's that's how it works. But that actually, I think if you ask people who they trust, I I don't want to worry the pensions industry, but I don't think you've come much ahead of politicians for for Mm -hmm. that. They do think you've got it, you know, in, and they've seen that. You know the lovely pictures of the lovely offices in the city that cost an awful lot of money, in, and the bonuses which bankers are paid, and all of those stories that that hit the press, you know, over the last sort of twenty years. So, um, I'm, it may not be that people immediately say yes, I trust the state, but I'm not sure they trust the pensions industry anymore. Trust is a big problem yeah. for mm-hmm. us. Uh, uh, I think that, but also what what it would take away from them is that need for choice and, and decision, you know, and decisions that they never ask to make. Yeah. People never said, I want a DC pension, I want choices. It's the same, people wanted good schools. They didn't want to choose what school their children mm. went to, but we gave them choice instead of better schools. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People want an income in retirement, which DB pensions couldn't afford. So we've given them one that we, we keep telling them gives them pension freedoms and choice. They didn't ask for freedoms and choice. When annuity rates were 11, 12%, nobody wanted freedom and choice. They were very happy yeah. to swap their 50 grand for 5,000, 6,000 pound a year. That's what my mother did when she retired from teaching nursing uh, with her ABC. It was fine. What they wanted was a decent income and retirement. Mm-hmm. And then what we're offering people instead of a way of having that is more choice with, as you know, DC fundamentally puts the risk back on a member mm-hmm. and a member who is 65, who wasn't safe enough, cannot make, cannot take that responsibility. So it falls back on the state anyway, mm-hmm. ultimately, mm-hmm. if we don't do that. So I think sometimes it's, it, you know, listen to me, I'm ranting on a podcast. This is not the view of, of quiet room and tomorrow may not even be my view, but, but in this moment, I'm saying that I just think paying a bit more into the treasury uh, through auto enrollment, turning it into national insurance mm. and giving everybody a £150 boost to their state pension would give an injection into 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 the long term investment in our in our country and its infrastructure, which it needs, which would boost the economy. And it would provide people with the certainty they want around retiring and knowing they'll be OK, because that's what most people want yeah. to retire and be OK. Mm. You know, anything beyond that. You save them. So I'm not going to ask you detailed questions. You'll be glad to know, Vince, about the uh, value. Nothing, as you know, as as everyone listening to now is going, these people who do communications, what a... (laughs) And I promise you, that's the reason there are much cleverer people now. (laughs) No, I just, I just, um, it's obviously, um, you know, within the VFM framework that the government's um, setting out, you've got a lot of focus on investment returns and you've got a lot of focus on costs and charges. And I really liked what you said yeah. about value isn't necessarily cheapest. Mm. Um, and that's a trap that we've really fallen into over pensions over the past 10 years or so. Um, but there are, you know, it's, it's not quite an afterthought, but there is a section within the, the, the consultation and the response on, you know, value for money and communication and the importance of engagement and, and that. What's your take on that? And how, how best do we sort of measure that and get some traction around that to ensure it really does contribute to value for money? Well, I, I think what you need to measure is uh, 
broader speaking is outcomes mm -hmm. not the not the communication if if what you're if what you're trying to do is help people you know if everybody is is retiring with uh, a reasonable sized pot or whatever you know that they've built up and i'm and are at that moment of retirement making decisions about what they do with it and where they go then your communication is is right mm -hmm. I, my fear is that you 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 we're too obsessed with activity and not enough with outcome. Yeah. If I'm doing loads of things and I've got an, a good website and it's got modelers on it and I do get people to come on it twice a year, you know, they come on and they and they look at it and oh great, then we've got engagement and that's a good thing. But actually when they're retiring, they're taking their cash, they're leaving the rest there, they're not doing anything with it. Then your engagement hasn't worked. Yeah. No matter how no, no matter how much people say, oh, I liked it and I sort of understood it and it all made sense and the journeys were short and all of that. So if your outcomes are good, then it sort of follows to me that everything you're doing must be right, whether that's the investment, the way you're enrolling people, the way you're talking to them, et cetera, et cetera, the costs and the charges are right. And that the, uh, the danger, and I think we're going to see this a lot as increasingly communications consultancies like us are becoming part of bigger organizations that are offering huge packages, that actually there will not be the people like Quiet Room challenging the way we're communicating as much mm. and I've got, there are we are we will get better at quiet room because we are surrounded by competitors who do really well too i'm not having a go at anyone i'm talking about a direction of travel that says we kind of we put all of this together into one bundle and you come to us for all your administration investment communication and everything and then a bit like buying into a camera or a macbook you then have to stick with everything they've got yeah. And no one comes along and says, actually, there's a better way of doing this. And within those organizations, the people doing communication are often being sold as a lost leader. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. doing good communication is not going to be at the heart of what that company is about. What they're about is, I hope, efficient and good uh, administration. And that's great. But if if communication is, is, is creates value for money by being cheap, then actually, maybe you shouldn't be doing any communication at all yeah. because, you know, bad bad road directions or road signs are worse than no road signs mm, at all. Mm, yeah. And uh, I definitely, so I, I'm very sympathetic to what you're saying. And I definitely perceive the trend of, I don't know, it's a mixture of cultures, isn't it? It's, 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 it's it, there, there is a world of people who want to show off about their latest Wizzy thing and the volume of writing that they've yeah. done um, without really tying it back to anything meaningful, but people do seem to buy that. Um, and we uh, and at Quiet Room, our, our, the heart when we set out because we didn't know anything when we set out, and you're going to say to me, you don't seem to know <laughs> now, uh, is that we were always the members' advocate. Mm. That's our job. I've sat in trustee meetings, you know, all all across the country, and and constantly saying, to myself, "Your job is to sit here and go, right, from a member's perspective, what does that look yeah. like? How does that feel? How would that, you know?" Uh, sometimes it's you know trustees saying should we tell members this now and I would and they look at you and I go well I always say the same thing well if you don't think you need to tell them now don't tell them mm -hmm. but but make sure if you're in front of a select committee you could explain why you did yeah yeah you know and and I think so I want that I really think as an outsider which the communications people should be because they should be coming at this from the perspective of the member your job is to challenge the industry and if you're the if you're the person in the room who's being bolted on as a cheap extra that's going to be offered uh, along with their administration, etc., are you ever going to are you going to be able to do that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so so I would hope that within any organisation, no matter how good the comms is, they are they have the right to challenge people above because mm -hmm. we've often worked with people where we've said, yeah, I know you've said this, you know the lawyers say this, and you and, but you get in a room with that lawyer. Uh, because the people into who are sort of sitting between you and the lawyer are saying no 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 the lawyers won't like yeah, that okay, yeah. get in a get in a room with a lawyer and they go no that's fine or they go yeah we don't like that and you go well what about this and they go yeah that's fine yeah, yeah. that's okay and so i think we do have to keep challenging all of everything we do and making sure you know and sitting in the seat of our members mm -hmm. and going how will that feel when that lands on my doormat or i open up that app well that's been Absolutely fascinating to speak to you, Vince. Uh, thank you so much for, for coming on. Here's to another 20 years of Quiet Room um, and to another 
five seasons of the thick of it. I think the thick of it's well over, isn't it? But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, the season it, it is well over. People often say, "Will there be more?" Yeah. And Amanda has said so many times, "There won't be." I think it's I think it's a bit like running for prime minister. <laughs> if you say, "I'm I'm not doing that," it means you are. So people don't quite believe. Yeah. It. Well, I'd love to see more. I'd, uh, uh, yeah. So so thank you so much for coming on. Um, we need to honour our one hour commitment. I'm sure we're over a day. Well, we are over. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but that's uh, been really really interesting to speak to. Thank you. Um, Darren, what have you got on? So yeah, um, coming up. So lots on at the moment. Um, it's it's always good when the DWP put out loads of consultations, um, and I'm helping a number of organisations responding to some of those. That um, must that's... be fascinating for you, Darren. Oh, it's, it's 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 great fun. It's what I do. <laughs> um, also working um, with DG Publishing on their private pensions, uh, private and public pensions summit. Um, okay. which takes place at Penny Hill Park um, later this year, 21st to 23rd of November. Um, you know, if listeners are interested in signing up for that, they can do so via their website, which is www.dgpublishing.com. Brilliant. Um, so the for me, the, the, the still the focus is on the, the council of the actuaries. We should have a better name, the Supreme Governing Authority, whatever we are. Um, the Polit no, no, no. The Politburo is a sub of that. This is the right. when they go into uh, when Mao went to the three thousand party members. That is the three thousand party members. Right. Um, so uh, just the first foothills of of supreme power. Um, so yeah, the election closes. <laughs> I think at the beginning of September. Um, lots of ongoing controversy um, in what's going on there. We I gave you a full update last week, and I won't bore you with it again. But uh, might bore with, bore you with it next week, depending oh, on uh, how wonderful. things are going. But yeah, if you can vote for me, do. Um, and I've been. Uh, if you look at my LinkedIn post, there's a few other candidates that I nominate as well. Uh, Vince, well, you, we were talking a little bit about kind of how people can find out more uh, about Quiet Room and some of the free stuff you've got. So maybe a quick word for that. Yeah, I, it would be we uh, well come along to the Quiet Room website and get and sign up for our free newsletter. Every couple of weeks, you'll get much more salient and useful information than I've given you today <laughs> in your inbox. But also, we've got a lot. We're focusing at the moment on the future of pensions. We've got a number of live events that are free. So you know, come along to the website, sign to the Quiet Room website, sign up for the newsletter, find out about the events, and come along. And and I'm I'll be at those events, and you can tell me where I'm wrong. <laughs> excellent, excellent. And before we go, um, give me one funny story about your co-founder. And I, I'm going to. But Mark Scantlebury. Yeah. Okay, Mark Scantlebury has no soul, <laughs> even though he's the nicest man on the planet. Uh, when we were first at Quiet Room, when we had no money, I love Christmas. I can't tell you how much uh -huh. I love Christmas. And Reese Williams, another of the, of the, you know, been at Quiet Room since virtually the beginning, is also a Christmas fan. And between us, we bought one of those chocolate advent calendars. You know the kind of thing. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, we had no money at the time. I don't want to come all Bob Cratchit on you, but we, it was early days and we were struggling. But we had this and we came back on the Monday morning, Reese and I, and randomly chocolate had been eaten from this thing because he'd been and he went, it's just chocolate, guys. Oh, it's no. just chocolate. Oh. He had destroyed an advent calendar. <laughs> he hadn't even eaten them in the right order. And he just opened days and taken out chocolate. <laughs> Yeah, that that's the real money. <laughs> Say what I you think, like. I, but, I think you know, the PRT, Darren, you need, you got work you got your work cut out, haven't you, mate? It's I have. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um so that brings today's fun to a close. Um Vince, thank you very much. You've been an absolute star. We could have carried on this mm. um for, for ages. Um next week we've got Charlotte Mornico. Yeah, very much looking to looking Brilliant. forward to speak to her. Yeah. Yeah, and um, yeah, do do listen, like, share the podcast, spread the word. Yeah, um, you can get in touch at vfmpensions at gmail dot com. Uh, until next time, that's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me and Vince. Goodbye. <laughs>